The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn with me to the book of James, James chapter 5 where we're looking at verses 1 through 11. We're wrapping up our study in James. Um, This is the second to last sermon in this series on the book of James. And then we go to our next series, uh, uh, which will be the book of Exodus. We've just sung about the providence of God in this great hymn. Uh, God moves in a mysterious way. And it tells us there, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And the hymn talks more about our limited view of God's providence and suffering, which is the theme of our sermon tonight and of the book of James. So we want to consider this call to patience in suffering. And we'll see that these verses of our text are divided into two major parts. You'll You'll feel that as we read this, and you'll hear that. So let us give heed to God's word. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, Brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is the word of God. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of it. One of the key themes of the book of James is the reality of suffering and hardship in every Christian's life in different degrees, in different amounts, in different times. Maybe you're suffering intensely right now, or maybe you haven't suffered that much in your life, you might say. But no matter where you are on that spectrum of suffering, we saw as we began our study in the book 
that this is one of James's key themes. In fact, chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So it's fitting that that key theme that James begins his epistle with, he brings into the conclusion as well, near the end of the book. And now, James, in chapter 5, is giving us a closing word of encouragement about suffering that, with God's help, enables us to patiently trust in the Lord and bear up when hardship comes. We want to look together this evening at three aspects of this call to patience in suffering. The first aspect of this call is the context And then, secondly, the hope of this call. And finally, the blessedness of this call. Well, first of all, the context of this call, verses 1 through through 6. The context of this call to patience in the midst of suffering. And the context is this. A fallen world with much injustice. The context of this call is, is a fallen world with much injustice, which is, in other words, saying this is the biblical view of this world. The Bible doesn't paint the world with rose-colored glasses. Notice I mentioned the two main sections, verses 1 to 6 and then verses 6 through 11. Notice the difference in the address at verse 1 and at verse 7, verse 1, come now, you rich, weep and howl. That's quite a contrast to verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Radically different things, people groups being addressed here. Clearly, verses 1 through 6 addresses really the unbelieving wealthy who are wicked, and we see the various things that they are doing with their wealth. James opens chapter 5 like an Old Testament prophet declaring uh, doom on those of this world and decrying their uh, wickedness in their actions. The unrighteous rich, we might say, is implied by this phrase, you rich, weep and hail and howl. Um, In the Greco-Roman world, there were wealthy landowners who often, by means of their power and their wealth, oppressed and uh, oppressed the poor and were guilty of, of wrong methods, sinful ways of acquiring money and using money. And uh, they are condemned by God's word. Uh, these words, weep and, and howl, are two words that are frequently used in the Old Testament to describe the response of the wicked when they're confronted with the day of the Lord. They, uh, they, dis- they react in this way. They, they weep. They wail. Um, there were many warnings in the Old Testament law that reflected God's concern for the poor, and those laws guarded against the oppression of the poor. But even in 
Israel, God's chosen people. These laws were uh, more often ignored than not. And so we see when we come to the New Testament, Jesus often issuing serious warnings about the threat of riches to serious discipleship. A lot of these are in Luke's gospel where, for example, in Luke chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Um, And we also know the familiar text where Jesus talks about it being hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Impossible, he says. And then in Revelation 18, you might be aware that there's this lengthy woe directed to the merchants of the earth who weep and mourn over the devastation of the great city Babylon. There's an extended passage about that. James is not passing judgment or pronouncing doom on all rich people because the Bible does not see wealth itself as sinful. But the sense here in James verses 5, verses 1 to 6 is a condemnation and a warning to the unrighteous wealthy. In verses 2 and 3, we see him describe that their riches, their wealth stands under the judgment of this world. They are things that pass away. He says that your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. It's interesting. It talks about gold and silver have corroded. Gold doesn't rust. Gold doesn't corrode. He's speaking metaphorically here. He's saying even something that's lasting like gold corrodes eternally. It doesn't have any lasting benefit. And in fact, he goes on to say that uh, they have laid up treasure in the last days. These things uh, at the end when Jesus returns, he says they will actually testify against them. They will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Elsewhere in the Bible, it's clear what James is speaking of here. He's saying that um, essentially these people have been guilty of laying up merely treasures on earth where Jesus talks about moth and rust corrupt, where thieves break in and steal. They haven't been laying up treasure in heaven by trusting the true God and worshiping him and obeying him and bringing their lives in conformity with his will. Reminds me of Luke 12, verse 33, where Jesus says, Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with, a treasure, with treasure in the heavens that does not fail. And so their priorities are all wrong. And then verse 4, we get to the idea of the sinful way that they've acquired this wealth. They say, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. What a phrase, what a sentence that's full of meaning. You think of the blood of Abel crying out as he was put to death by his brother. Or you think of this phrase, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, giving the idea of the Lord's omnipotence, his power, his being able to judge, that apparently these daily laborers, and we think of the subsistence culture at that time, that their wages were not being given to them. 
Um, we think of the parable of the workers of the vineyard in Matthew 20, where the workers are paid at the end of the day. You know, most of us get paid maybe every other week or something like that. And, you know, we have enough money to get through every day. We, hopefully we use it that well. M- maybe there's uh, too much month for the paycheck sometimes. But in that cul- culture, often the very wage that a worker made was what he used that evening to buy food with. And so their wages have been withheld. They've been cheated out of their wages. It shows that these workers are are barely on a subsistence kind of lifestyle. And these wealthy rich have cheated them out of their pay. And then in verse 5, we find that they have lived this life of luxury and self-indulgence. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. That word self-indulgence is used in Scripture only in one or two other places, and it always has that sense of sinfully living merely for the pleasures of this life. And the day of slaughter probably alludes to what we're going to hear in verses 7 through 11, the coming of Christ. In fact, Revelation 19 portrays that day in the sense of great and terrible judgment and destruction that falls. And then finally, in verse 6, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. The righteous one here, the righteous person is most likely referring to a believer, a believer who, who may be poor and is experiencing oppression at the hands of these wicked rich folks. And James here um, convicts them of of murdering the righteous person. It may be, speaking of that literally, uh, that they've been taken to court and may be executed because of some charge. In fact, back in chapter 2, at verse 6, James asks, Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? But it's just as likely that this idea of murdering the righteous person has to do with the practical outcome of holding back wages, um, that they've taken away the results of their gainful employment, that um, they've oppressed them so that the poor even starve to death, that kind of an idea. And he concludes with this, One commentator says this phrase of majestic pathos, he does not resist you. The poor are oppressed and destroyed in this way. And so here we have this context for the call that we're going to see, and we could summarize it in this way. There are really four specific reasons that James gives here, and I'll just mention them, about the rich. They have selfishly hoarded their wealth, verses 2 and 3. They have cheated their workers, verse 4. They have lived a sinfully self-indulgent lifestyle, verse 5. And they have oppressed the righteous, verse 6. That's the sum of why their wealth is so condemned here. Now, it's interesting to think about this. This is, the, this is the context of suffering that James comes to. In our Western culture, think of how our society and culture looks at wealth. Well, everybody has different views, but essentially amassing wealth is not only condoned, 
But in our culture, it's admired and it's glamorized. And as believers, we need to stop and just make application of what James is saying here because we need to be alert to this constant pressure and temptation to more and more conform our thinking and our desires and our lifestyle to the materialistic mindset of the world. It's a very pervasive mindset. We might say, well, why does James preach this message of warning and judgment to the non-Christian rich in a letter addressed to the church? Calvin gives two reasons for this. One is that as believers, as we hear of this condemnation of the rich and their ultimate end, we might not envy them. Like Psalm 73, Psalm 37, my feet had almost slipped because I had envied the rich, the prosperous, the wicked. There was a recent news story about uh, the death of a famous TV personality. I forget his name now, but he's the one who hosted the lives of the rich and famous, apparently, for years. I never did see that show. I guess it was at a time that we weren't watching much television. But um, the news story that we saw on that showed some little snippets of his shows around the world. It was just amazing, you know, at mansions and at palaces and sipping wine with the fabulously wealthy and on cruises and all of this. Well, this individual is now gone from this life But I got to thinking about that. Isn't that what our culture says? Look at the lives of the rich and famous. Don't you want what they have? And Calvin and James is saying, don't envy them. The other reason Calvin gives to quote him for uh, why James includes this in a message to believers is that... um, knowing that God would be the avenger of the wrongs they suffered, that they, Christians, might with a calm and resigned mind mind bear these wrongs and sufferings. In other words, knowing that God is the judge helps believers bear these sufferings with a mind that is calm and trusting in the Lord. And that, that has to do with the context here. There's a link between verses 1 to 6 and verses 7 through 11. The the unrighteous wealthy are warned of judgment to come, but also at the same time as believers, as we read this, we're given a biblical view of the world, a world with much injustice that is not typically that those injustices are not rectified or made right in this world. Life. And so the context of this call to patience and endurance is suffering, in suffering, is a context of reality. James is not sugarcoating life in this present world. Some of you might have heard about the famous newspaper advertisement that Ernest Shackleton placed in the newspaper in 1907, seeking men for his voyage to Antarctica. This is, this is it. Wanted. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. 
Apparently, lots of men applied. I found out this week that the Smithsonian and other uh, institutions are doubting whether this advertisement ever really was true or not, but there you have it. Well, isn't that kind of what James is doing here? This is the ultimate end of unjust wealth. This is the context of this world. We Christians in the West have not faced the degree of persecution and suffering and injustice that many of our brothers and sisters face around the world. Think of believers in North Korea or China even now with the crackdown in the last two months or Syria or Iran and Iraq. Many have been imprisoned and enslaved or even put to death for their faith. But God's call to patient endurance for those he loves stands before all of us to whatever degree our suffering has been. And a world of injustice that James 1 to 6 describes does not cancel this call of God upon our lives. No, it underlines this call. It underscores this call that you and I, that is the reality of the world that we live in. And if anything, if we've had pretty easy lives and haven't suffered that much, that's really a rarity in biblical terms. So this is the context of the call. Secondly, I want us to see the hope of this call. Verses 7 through 9. The hope of this call to persevere is the impending glorious coming of Jesus Christ. The hope of this call to persevere and to be patient in suffering is the impending glorious coming of Jesus Christ. Listen to verse 7 again. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Verse 7, the coming of the Lord uses that word parousia. Many of you know that word transliterated into English, the parousia literally means the presence. It's a word that's very often used in the New Testament to describe the coming, the second coming of Jesus Christ in glory. It's a term that was used in ancient times for the the arrival of a king or a great dignitary to a community, his coming. And notice here it says in verse 7 that in relationship to Jesus' coming, we are to be like a patient farmer waiting for rain. And it mentions how the farmer in Palestine uh, was patient about the rain until it receives the early and the late rains. Really, these are rains that came in late autumn and early spring. Palestine didn't have a lot of rain. It was important when the regular rains did come that they show up on time, very important for the crops. You can imagine the farmer waiting with patience and expectation for there to be rain. I was waiting for rain in early July. Maybe some of you were. We have gotten rain since then, if you didn't notice. But uh, there are about two weeks there of 90-degree days, and, you know, all of us were talking about, are you going to water your yard yet, you know, and how do you water with one sprinkler or a big yard, and, you know, the grass was starting to dry. And I remember thinking at the time, probably was driving home from work, and I thought, I'm glad I'm not a farmer. I'm glad my life does not depend on my grass growing or dying. I'm glad I'm not dependent on crops like that of an ancient farmer and what, was, what that was like. Um, but unlike 
The farmer uh, who waits patiently for rain, James is saying, you and I as believers are called to wait patiently in the same way for the coming of Christ, which, by the way, is absolutely certain, and it is described here as always impending. Notice how verse 8 says, You also be patient, establish your hearts or strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand, or some translations may say near. What that means is strengthen your heart, Hold fast to the faith in the midst of temptation and suffering and trial as you wait patiently for the coming of Christ. Fortify yourself in God's grace, knowing Jesus Christ will return in your struggle against temptation or suffering or sin. Why? Because the coming of the Lord is at hand. The coming of the Lord is near. Scripture says that again and again. The Lord's coming is always impending because we, between the time of the first and second coming of Christ, we live in the last days. These are the last days. The coming of Christ is always close. And Verse 9, by the way, is not out of place as it thinks about the return of Christ. As James thinks about that, notice he makes a particular application in suffering. He says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And he's not saying that to scare them in the sense of bringing them under condemnation, but he's saying this is a further application of the patience that is required in suffering, grumbling against others, especially against those who are close to us, is so easy to do when we are under pressure or we are facing difficult circumstances. And verse 9 reminds us that the coming of Christ will also present to believers a serious assessment of their own spiritual state, of their own lives, not under condemnation, but it says that we'll give an account of every idle word. First, uh, Second Corinthians says we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Yes, we will be saved, but part and parcel of seeing our Savior face to face is this sense of assessment in which we live in light of. This point really gets us to the heart of our motivation to bear up patiently and trust the Lord in suffering. This nearness of the coming of Christ, this call to bear patiently and wait upon the Lord. Scripture gives us many reasons to persevere, but this is the brightest reason of all. Jesus Christ is coming back. Our lives are but a mist, Hold on, you will very, very, very soon be with your Savior. Very soon you will see him face to face. Yes, it seems like a long time in this earth, but the believer's eye of faith looks at the promises of the return of Christ, and that eye of faith brings near the coming of Jesus. Whether that day of Christ turns out to be tomorrow or a thousand years from now, 
and meditating on the glorious return of Jesus Christ to save his people fully and finally and to judge the world in righteousness and to establish the new heavens and the new earth and to right every wrong, to make all things new. That coming of Christ is the hope of every believer that puts steel in the righteous believer's bones, however great the trial may be. That is the believer's bright hope Well, that brings us to our third point, the blessedness of this call. The blessedness of this call is the final purpose of the Lord. We've heard about patience because the Lord's coming is near. And now in verses 10 and 11, James talks about the purpose of God in suffering. And he uses some examples. Listen as he writes, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So James gives us two examples here, the prophets and Job, two examples of patience and endurance. And by the way, we've seen those two words now in verses 7 through 11. The word patience, you might know that word macrothumia, and the word endurance. And both of those are used often in Scripture, but there's a lot of overlap in these verses in the meaning of those, those words. We could say, we could combine them and say, patient endurance, waiting patiently on the Lord while bearing up, trusting in Him. That's the sense of these words. It's interesting that the one word, patience is used in verse 10 of the prophets, and the other word, endurance or steadfastness, is used of Job. And I don't believe he's saying different things, like the prophets were patient, but Job endured. No, he's, the same meaning really is there applies to both of them. That meaning of waiting on the Lord, trusting in him, and so bearing up, entrusting your circumstances to him, still holding to God's love for you in Jesus Christ, All of this while still suffering and not understanding what God is doing. And he's saying, look at the prophets, look at Job. They're good examples for us. The prophets, we don't know which prophets especially he was referring to, but Jesus talks about the prophets suffering and being put to death. You wonder if James had the example of Isaiah in mind, who was uh, brutally put to death, Um, Or Jeremiah, especially, you think of Jeremiah enduring all the suffering. You read through the book of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. It's not because Jeremiah was was weak. Jeremiah was very strong in the Lord, but he suffered a lot. You think of him being thrown into the pit, this muddy pit. You think of him being threatened and fearing death over and over again. During this time of God's judgment being poured out on the nation of Judah, and uh, a time of great apostasy. And it highlights in verse 10 that these prophets spoke in the name of the Lord. They were doing what God called them to do. And they suffered in the context of that. And it says in verse 11, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Blessedness certainly isn't speaking here of emotional elation or happiness. That wasn't Jeremiah's state. That wasn't Job's state. Reminds me of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other, 
utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. There is a specific mention of the prophets and what they experienced. And James is picking up on that. We consider them blessed. That blessedness has to do with their state, their relationship to the living God, irrespective of how they felt emotionally at the time. And so the prophets, and then we find Job as well. You have heard of the steadfastness or endurance of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. It's interesting that James mentions Job. It's somewhat curious, isn't it? Because we don't really uh, think of Job as perfectly enduring what he went through. In fact, we know that in some things he he was too impatient with the Lord, that he demanded his day in court. Uh, but ultimately, he was faithful. He persevered in faith in God. And it says here, you have seen the purpose of the Lord. Now, that could also be translated, you have seen the end of the Lord. A little word, telos. You might have heard of that word in the Greek. It's used a lot. And there are different options to what it could mean. It could mean the purpose of God in refining Job, along the lines of James chapter 1, God refining and testing us, or Romans 5, how we see the purposes of God in cultivating character in our lives. But it's more likely that James means the end that the Lord brought about in Job's situation, how Job was finally, at the end of the book of Job, restored. You've seen the end of the Lord, the end that the Lord brought about. Now, both of those meetings could, could be there at the same time, but the application for Christians is along these lines. The call to patience and suffering is a call to blessedness because our lives may be like Job's life at times, but the end of the Lord for us, just like for Job, the end of the Lord of the of of God's purpose for us will be brought to light when Jesus Christ comes again. Our circumstances when Jesus returns will be completely transformed when we see him face to face. And when the new heavens and the new earth are ushered in, that will be the full experience of the blessing that God promises And so the final purpose and blessedness for every believer is something that we must be regularly bringing to our minds in this life that suffering is a very real part of. I've been reading a fascinating biography of George Washington written by Ron Chernow. Some of you know him as the author of the Alexander Hamilton biography that was famous, made famous by Broadway. But Chernow brings to light an interesting facet of Washington's personality. And one of the ways that Washington handled the great stress and the hardship of heading up a continental army that lost more battles than it won and that was constantly underfunded and underprovided for with the soldiers often in rags and half-starving, Cherno talks about that. And he, he notes that in some of the most desperate times, there are these letters that Washington wrote to his brother who was acting at caretaker 
of Washington's home in Mount Vernon, the Mount Vernon estate. And so in the midst or right after a terrible battle and a great loss that the Continental Army is fleeing, there apparently late at night, you can just imagine Washington writing a letter about the renovations of a certain room in Mount Vernon. I found that interesting. And Cherno makes the remark at a number of spots, this was Washington's one little escape, that he could transport himself out of the big mess with all the demands and all that was upon him and meditate for a few minutes about something that gave him a sense of tranquility and peace and happiness. Make sure you get that room just right, Lund, his brother Lund. No, but no doubt it was a, a way to momentarily escape all the demands. It reminds me of General Eisenhower in World War II, right before D-Day, you know, late at night reading a Western by Louis L'Amour, you know, just to get his mind off of things and to escape. But for believers, my point in this illustration is this. You say, what is he talking about? What do we have in suffering We have something much, much better to meditate upon. I'm not saying it's wrong to think about remodeling your room or anything like that. But we have something much, much better to meditate upon. The blessedness. You have heard of the steadfastness, the endurance of Job, and you have seen the end of the Lord, the purpose of the Lord in Job's life and his final restoration. There is a much greater restoration. Job eventually died. All that he had amassed and all his sheep and camels and all those things, he had to let go of them because he died. Our restoration, the blessedness of believers when Jesus returns is going to be much greater than the blessedness of Job. We have the blessedness of seeing our Savior and knowing the final purposes that God will bring about we can cry out, hallelujah. And so in the context of this world, this present world that is groaning in the pains of childbirth, in the context of injustice and wickedness on every side, with the nearness of the coming of Jesus Christ, believers, strengthen your heart. Take encouragement from this word from James. The judge is at the door The second coming of Jesus Christ is at hand. Establish your hearts. Remember the prophets. Remember Job. And be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that that day will be here very, very soon. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the love of Jesus Christ. Thank you for holding us up in that great love. And we ask that you would strengthen us with the truth of your word now. Help us to let it sink deeply into our hearts. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.